I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, so you want to buy a boat. Some tips and tricks on buying and fixing up a used boat. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey Todd, how you doing? Uh, how's everything going um, on your side of the town? Everything's going great. So what do we have in store for today's episode? Well, I'd been noticing that a bunch of our listeners have uh, been actually buying boats and setting out on their journey with the boats. And uh, I decided that it might be um, interesting if I recount some of the experiences I have uh, had with uh, buying boats. I've I. I actually counted up. I've owned uh, 14 boats in my life, which is one is way too many. But in any case, it's uh, um, it's a lot of boats, and I've learned a couple of things. So uh, we're going to do essentially a two-part series. We're going to start with uh, with boats, uh, uh, divide it up into old boats, new boats, um, and uh, some of the th- some of the processes. And some of the um, the ways to think about it and where to start when you buy a boat, especially if it's a it's an older boat and it needs uh, to some work. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Buying a boat. I've noticed a lot of. Uh, people on my Facebook page, Offshore Explorer, that uh, some people are buying some boats. Um, buying a boat's an exciting time. Um, I personally bought 10 boats. Now, I've been lucky enough to sort of buy old and worn down and fix them up and turn a little bit of a profit by flipping the boat. But it's not something that I concentrate on like these house flipper guys. Um, it's just something that, you know, happened to fall in my lap, um, which leads me to um, a number of people who are buying boats today or have bought um, an older boat. Um, a new. Some have bought a pretty new boat and some have bought a uh, brand new boat. Now, I wanted to sort of cover those three areas um, about buying a boat and tell you a little bit, uh, a little story about how I kind of bought my, one of my boats. Okay. So the first thing in buying a boat, obviously, is you want to choose the right boat. Now, how do you choose the right boat? Well, first off, you have to look at each boat as, as, you know, what your skill level is. That's important. Um, The second thing is, what are you going to do with the boat? Um, If you're going to be based in one marina and you're going out sailing on the weekend or 
maybe you're going to go out racing, uh, that's going to eliminate a lot of boats that you don't have to consider. Um, you know, there's a lot of older boats um, that make good um, that make good sailing. You know, local like in Marina del Rey where I live. You know, taking a trip out to Catalina or you know, which is you know. 40 miles or whatever the case it's a, it's a nice long day sail uh, or going up um, to the other islands or sailing down the coast or whatever I don't need a big heavy blue water boat to do that kind of sailing it's nice to have if that's what you want to have and it's also nice to have if if you're really going to act on your dreams a lot of people buy blue water boats and they dream of doing the blue water, but in fact, they never do that. They're just, you know, just doing weekend excursions and hanging out with their boat. And of course, um, money <laughs> is the next big thing when choosing the right type of boat for you. The worst thing that can happen is, is to buy a boat and then not be able to afford it in three or four months. I have seen this happen quite a lot. Um, and it's kind of really, it's head scratching to me. I, I know a guy who bought just a, a wonderful Chris Craft. Um, it was an eighties version Chris Craft, but it was really Bristol. It was a nice looking boat, really beautiful. Um, you know, open cockpit, uh, fishing vessel, you know, really beautiful, shaped, gorgeous, um, the guy was classically, this is a classic behavior of guys who are in the middle of a divorce and they take all their money and they put it into a boat because they're going to live on the boat um, and not live at the house or whatever the case may be. Um, and then they lose the boat through, eventually through the divorce or they run out of money, take care of the boat or the marina says, dude, you can't live on your boat. There's only a certain amount of liveaboards, and almost every marina is like this, and they're and they're very uh, strict on liveaboards on almost any marina, um, and it's kind of unfortunate. I'll get into that maybe at a later date about how to deal with the marina and the dockmaster and understanding what the the real point of all these residential apartments around marinas. It's not the boats. The boats are just there to elevate the price of the apartments. But anyway, I digress. Choosing the right boat. So let's let's go back. I, I chose a boat um, when I first started out. And actually, my grandfather was the one who found it. And he was the one that paid for it, even though I owed him the money and I paid him the money back. And it was a little 21-foot sloop. Um, it was based on a Hirschhoff design and had a little cuddy cabin in it. Um, I could unstep the mast whenever I wanted to. Um, and I had a half horsepower Johnson as my auxiliary. Now that boat was perfect for me when I was a young man, a teenager, because all I was going to do was sail it around the bay in New Jersey maybe go out into the ocean on occasion, maybe make a longer trip. 
And during that period, my family had moved from there to Cleveland, so I got put the boat in the Great Lakes. I know I've got a couple of uh, listeners who follow me um, who live uh, um, near the Cleveland Yacht Club. I kept the boat down there for about four years. Um, You know, so there's... And I had that... I mean, I went to Pelee Island... um, I was going to sail up to Mackinac and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Never actually did it. Spent most of my time in, in Lake Erie, just uh, basically sailing around with my buddies and um, racing a little bit, but my boat wasn't really fast. But uh, it was a fun little racer, a little sloop rig thing. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is, is that that boat uh, was made for was made for me. And that's how I felt about it. I said, okay, this boat, me and this boat, this is it. You know, I, I'd actually put it on a trailer when we moved from Philadelphia, New Jersey area. I had it on a trailer and I towed it with my mom's 1958 Chevy Bel Air all the way to Cleveland, Ohio, actually, all the way to Bay Village, Ohio. And um, it sat outside the house uh, <laughs> next to the road until I found uh, a place to keep it down in the Cleveland Yacht Club. Who, by the way, the people there were extremely nice. And um, I don't know if they're still extremely nice, but they, they were a lot of fun. They were really down to earth and wasn't anything like the some of the East Coast yacht clubs that I had been um, introduced to that the snootiness and all the rest of that nonsense that goes with this is my yacht club kind of attitude was just, it it makes me want to throw up. So choosing the right boat, you know, whether you're going to be a coastal sailor or where you're going to be a blue water sailor. One of the boats I bought that I did most of my uh, sailing around the world on was a Robert Perry design CT-54. Now, this boat I bought because it's A, a blue water boat, and is B, is a charter boat. And I bought it so that I could do charters. I, would, I created a charter business. So this is a very specific kind of boat. Now, I know a lot of people will pick up a CT, they'll pick up a Pearson or maybe a Morgan or some of these other boats that are blue water boats, a little heavy, Okay, they're not, you know, lickety split sailors. Um, They look good, they're roomy, and they make great charter and great liveaboard boats. Now, a more modern boat that kind of fits into that that scenario is some of the Benetos and Chinos. They they also uh, fulfill both the charter and the blue water concept. But I always felt that the Benetos were closer to a coastal sailing vessel than they were to a real true blue water boat. Um, They are somewhat light. Um, And sometimes they're not as stout as they, as I think they should be in certain blue water situations. Um, Because when you're sailing long distance, comfort um, becomes a huge uh, issue. Um, And a heavy blue water boat, you know, takes out that jostling and shaking and vibrating that you would feel on a, on a lighter boat, say like a, a Genoa or, or um, uh, a Beneteau. 
Um, although I'm not saying anything against them because you'll actually go faster in a Beneteau than you would say in, you know, a Morgan 51 Out Islander. So this is how you have to sort of look at it. So look at the boat, you know, what's the purpose of the boat for you? How are you going to fit on that boat? I mean, if you're dreaming of going blue water sailing, okay, um, there's no reason, and it's going to be like, say, you know, we're going to go when I retire. And that's going to be what, in 10 years? Don't buy yourself a blue water boat. Buy yourself something that, that can you can hang around um, coastal, have some fun with, that has a little bit of speed, really get used to it. And that way it'll help you define what you're looking for in a blue water boat. A lot of people just jump into buying blue water boats. And I've said it before in, in a couple of uh, other podcasts that there's a process that people go through to go from life on land to life in the boat to traveling around the world in the boat. And there's a lot of missteps that can occur in that. And I, I'll expand a little bit more on on some of that stuff, but a little bit later. But right now I want to focus on making sure you get the right boat. So anyway, you've decided on the right boat that you want. So the next thing is, is to decide on your budget. Okay. Now that's only something you can do. You can say, I got X number of dollars for it and this, that, and other thing. And, and if you're buying an older boat, that's almost, you're not going to be able to really finance it. So it's pretty much a cash on the barrel kind of idea. So you have to be a pretty good negotiator. And then it depends on the size that and how much. And then you take that and then consider what the costs are going to be. The bigger the boat, the more expensive the slip. It's as simple as that. You know, there's the old the old joke that there's three sizes to every boat. There's the size of the boat, which is the intermediate size which is what the factory tells you it is. Um, then there's the smallest size, is what you tell the dock master what it is. And then there's the giant size, which is what you tell your girlfriend. It's an old joke, but there's a lot of truth to it. So you have to make sure that you can manage this, this you know, month-to-month um, fees and, and insurance and all the rest, because you have to have all the stuff. You can't just let it slide. It's got to be there. And there's a lot of things that you have to do before you get there. But I'm not going to kind of get into that because I'm working on setting up a um, an interview with a very famous boat broker. He sells um, all sorts of boats. And he, is, uh, he also builds boats. Um, but he's been a part of a lot of unique financing plans for new boats. And um, because a lot of us will look and say, and I was the same way back in the day, is say, you know, I see somebody in a brand new million dollar, two million dollar, three million, five million dollar yacht. And I'm saying to myself, how's it, you got to make a lot of money to afford a yacht plus all the rest of the stuff that goes along with, you know, a house like that. It's, I mean, it's a lot of money every month. It's a lot of money. I've run big mega yachts. Okay, I I've spent five six hundred thousand dollars on maintenance and crew in a year, food, cars, you name it. And you know what? It went fast. It's easy to do if you're going to go down that road. 
So I was always curious about how these guys financed these particular boats. And there's a lot of schemes that are involved that people do. And um, that's why we're going to do this this uh, interview with a boat broker later. But one of the things is, is to get enough down payment money to buy yourself a new boat and then move up in size. I worked for an owner that started out um, with like a 40-foot Freddy powerboat. And um, he traded the Ferretti in for a a 72-foot Ferretti. And he had the same payments. He just worked with the Ferretti company, and they gave him the same payments. So he had a 72-foot boat for the price of a 40-foot boat. Then they came up with another thing. Hey, how would you like to get a 90-foot Ferretti? And he did that. So he was in this constant state of building. And what you have to know about these new boat builders, and this goes for Benetow, it goes for any new boat builder that's out there. Um, They want to keep building. So they're going to be willing to help you flip your boat and move you forward into bigger boats through their financing. So even though you may not have big money, don't you know don't don't discount buying yourself a a new boat because it's a new boat is is uh can be you know very economical in the beginning and to be able to flip that boat every two or three years into a bigger boat nicer boat etc for essentially the same down payment um rodriguez brothers those in in the mediterranean know who they are um, that's how they built their company, doing exactly like that. They they went from basically building um, twenty foot outboard motorboats to building mega yachts of uh, you know almost two of two hundred feet, and um, they did that all through this unique financing plan, which everybody's involved like with the cash flow. So. New boat is a different circumstance than an old boat, but I'm going today. I'm going to focus more on an older boat and I'm going to focus on how I bought uh, and how it worked out that I bought a my CT54. So I was running a, a charter boat out of uh, Charlotte Amale in the US Virgin Islands. I had delivered a boat down there. I was introduced to the community um, at the time, there was 351 crewed charter boats moving in and out based in Charlotte, Amale. And then the Coast Guard got active and told us that they didn't want any of us there. And the cruise ships bought up all the dock space and um, the community, the Virgin Islands basically frowned it, frowned on all these crewed yacht club. And I was a member of the captain's council and all the rest of this of the of the Crude Charter Boat Association. And, you know, we estimated we were bringing in between 17 and $21 million a year. And, and obviously that was seasonal, so which is quite a bit of money. And they basically told us to get lost. And by the time I left Charlotte Amale um, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, which I haven't been back to in 20 years, um... There were about 70 crewed charter boats that 
kind of based themselves in Charlotte O'Malley. So there is a, the charter business is a different business, and I'll, I'm going to get into the charter business in the future here. But so I had this job as a captain, and I was doing um, charters, and it was a very active boat. It was a, a 51-foot Morgan out Islander. Um, it actually, the boat had been owned by Captain Kirk himself, which was kind of cool. And uh, at one point, so it had a little bit of uh, celebrity history to it, which is kind of appropriate for my lifestyle. The next step was uh, I was, you know, sailing around and, and a friend of mine said, hey, there's a boat for sale and it is a really nice boat. It's a CT-54. You ought to go look at it. And so I did. And um, it was actually impounded. And it was going to, it was, it was just sitting out in the harbor on a buoy, locked up. It was um, repossessed by the bank, and it was under going to be under a sheriff's sale. So I went over and found out about the boat, took a quick look at the boat. I realized that they tented the boat to get rid of termites, which in a way was really hilarious because it just showed how much the bank didn't understand termites, boats, and especially uh, Robert Perry's uh, design CTs, because the interiors are all teak. Caribbean termites will start on, will start eating if they get a chance to nest, which sometimes they do. They'll land, I've had them just like cover the boat in, you know, if the wind is blowing the wrong way, say like in August or something like that, and they're looking for a place and they can't eat the teak. Um, they can start, but what happens is the oil in the teak makes them sick, and um, they give up, and they go away. But this boat had been sitting, so the, they had created, like, you know, the lines to the colony of termites. And I already knew this. I don't know how I knew it, but I knew that, you know, termites don't eat teak. And this broker was telling me um, that, you know, it could be in the hull. Well, as we all know, well, we don't all know, but some of us know that the hull uh, looks like planking, but it's actually fiberglass. And it's like three-quarter inch fiberglass glass all the way around. It's as thick as hell. So, so I'm, gonna, I'm just standing there nodding, and this guy is telling me and telling me and telling me. So they started out, they started out the bidding at $250,000. And it's cash on the barrel, whatever. And the the auction for it from the sheriff's auction is once every three months. So we went through the routine. Nobody bid on the boat because they were so afraid of the termites and the termites could be in the hull, which wasn't, couldn't happen because it was already fiberglass. And there was this, this boat had been stripped of almost every piece of electronics that the boat had. Okay. Even the VHF radios were gone. Um, everything was taken from the boat. The only thing that was really on the boat was, um, if I can remember, were just the instrumentation to the engine. Okay. And the engine hadn't been serviced, nothing. It was, the place was musty and dirty and, and there was, you know, 
some floor rot and a couple of other things. And it was just, it was just, it was a disaster really um, to look at it. But I could see through that stuff because I had the skills to deal with it. Like a lot of you who are buying boats and older boats and stuff, you got skills and, you know, you can, you can save yourself a lot of bucks. Plus, you know what, working on a boat is one of the greatest joys I find in my life. I love working on them. I love, you know, doing the varnish. I love doing stuff, you know, just puttering around, you know, putting this in, taking that out, replacing this, you know, whatever it is. It's just fun to do. Ask me to do it to my car. I, I could care less, but I love boats. So that's why I love doing the maintenance. So we're going to assume that you kind of like puttering around and you've got some skills um, in terms of maybe electricity or carpentry or whatever. But, you know, on a boat, you can learn them all. It's not that hard. So here's this boat, and they wanted $250,000 for it. And it was certainly worth that. Um, I think it was actually probably worth more at the time. Um, but anyway, they think they were just trying to get back what the loan amount was. So uh, I didn't do any bidding. I just kind of walked away from it and says, you know, I'll just leave that boat go. Although I really love the boat. I mean, I, I thought the boat was just, she was gorgeous. She, you know, white hull with a, with a um, uh, Royal Navy blue trim. Um, you know, teak decks were in really good shape. The masts were in really great shape. Um, they didn't have the sails out, so I really didn't see them, but I kind of didn't wasn't really concerned um, because I would, if I bought the boat, I would have new sales made anyway. And I'm going to do that in just a second. So the next, in three months later, I come sailing back in Charlotte, Molly, and um, this guy said, hey, you know, the sheriff sails today. And I had just come in from charter. I was exhausted. And I said, oh, no, nah, they're asking too much money for that boat and, you know, whatever. And he says, oh, yeah, man, you're going to miss a great bargain. Is that okay? So this guy, he takes off. I And I decide at the last second to jump in the dinghy and fly across the bay because I was over there in the Ramada um, uh, Marina, which if you guys have been in Charlotte Amalia, you know what I'm talking about. And so we zoom, I zoomed over there. I was really, really tired. And... Um, I went into the office by the Coast Guard, which is right there, the Coast Guard building compound. And we went through the, you know, the bidding process. I had my little, you know, piece of paper and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And we're just standing there, standing there, standing there. And then they finally get around the boat because they sold a bunch of other boats. And um, they said they started at 250 but they would be, the bank had given them approval to, um, to accept all bids. Hmm, which is a casual way of saying, like, we know we're asking too much and we'll take whatever we can get. So off it went. And the bidding went the bidding went down to about $175,000. Um, and that was just the auctioneer. Nobody bid on the boat. Guy leaned over to me who was sitting right next to me. And he said, yeah, this boat's got serious termite problems. And I'm like, I know it doesn't have termite problems, but I'm not going to tell him that. So it goes down to 175000 and there's just this sort of quiet in the room. It's just a little office with silly billboards about washing your hands and 
you know, where the fire extinguishers are and stuff like that. Very dull gray-ish kind of place. And then the guy goes, uh, 150. And I thought, mm, I could do that. But I didn't raise my hand because I was distracted by this woman who was standing in the corner and she was crying. And I'm going, I'm like, what? And then I turn around and like the, the auctioneer waited, 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 waited. Then he said, will anybody take 100? And at $100,000, I said, fuck yeah. And I raised my hand. I said, oh yeah. And I raised my hand. I bid $100,000. And this girl is standing, this woman, very attractive woman, was standing in the corner. She just like bursts out, bursts out in crying and ah, like this. And I'm, no one knows. What, we couldn't figure out what was going on. Like, is somebody over there, you know, beating this woman? Can she go cry somewhere else while we do this business? So this other guy who said, oh, it's termites, he goes, oh, all right, all right, all right. 103000 Well, I already know that, that we're like way under the value of this boat. Way under the value of this boat. So I offered, I upped it 2000 I offered 105 And the guy said, oh, no, I'm not buying any termite trap, blah, 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 blah. And boom. I bought a CT-54 in 19... 19- 82 for 105,000. The actual value of the boat at that point was closer to 600,000. So I was starting out way ahead. So now I had this boat. What was I going to do? Well, I quit my other job as a captain on the other boat and because I needed to devote it devote all my time to making the the CT-54 into, you know, a really beautiful uh, charter boat. So I took the boat off the mooring, which I had, you know, they helped me, and I got it off, and uh, the motor started and everything else like that, and I took the boat over to Coral Bay. And I'd had some relationships over in Coral Bay, and um, I've told a couple of stories about Coral Bay, especially... um, you know, not a moment to lose stories. And I've also have a movie we're working on right now about the place. And so I went over there and I, I had a mooring over there that I had actually bought, um, in anticipation of putting a boat up there. And I just love the place. I was like enamored with the place. It's like crazy, passionate. I want to stay here forever. And that only lasted until I finished the boat, got in the charter fleet, um, and I very rarely ever went back to that mooring ball. In fact, I traded the mooring ball for some supplies from the, uh, from the local uh, uh, marine store, which was, it was actually a good trade for both of us. So I find out when I get over to Coral Bay and I put the boat on the mooring, um, one of the guys that are over there, uh, Red, he, he comes up to me and he says, so you bought the you bought her boat. You bought Connie's boat. And I'm going like, who's Connie? Well, Connie was the woman standing in the corner crying. 
And the reason she was crying was because the price, whatever price that she would get, the bank would get for that, was going to wipe her slate clean with the bank financially. And she would only owe a little bit of money. And and the whole story was is that she and her boyfriend, who was uh, a scumbag, um, they bought this boat together and they were going to go sail around the world and do all sorts of things together. And she had more money than he did. And then he stripped the boat, took every bit, every penny out of the boat and then dumped her and disappeared. And then she was stuck because she took out a loan on the boat. She was stuck with it. So finally she, she, she did her own bankruptcy thing and all the rest. And she just hated to lose the boat. And she, she just had so many dreams tied up into this boat that, you know, this was such an important thing for her. And um, that's why she was there kind of following it. So Connie became kind of a good friend of mine, and um, I would have her out on the boat. She would invite me. She, she eventually rented a house up on the mountain, um, and uh, she would have a party, and she'd always invite me if I was around. It was always, it was a very, very nice very nice relationship and she was really happy about the boat because she was attached to the boat like you know people get attached to their dogs or cats and those of you who are boat people know that feeling you get so attached to your boat that you know it's you know your children don't matter you know my boat is the most important thing and that's the key so anyway um here i am i've got the ct54 and I have a lot of work to do. And I was very lucky because I, up until this point, I had uh, worked on quite a few boats. Um, I had owned um, two other uh, sailboats, um, mostly the little day sailors or, you know, like I had a little Catalina 20, Catalina 27, okay, which is a nice little boat for the time. Um, but, um, you know, I, I got, I, I bought it, fixed it up a little bit, sold it and that sort of thing. But one of the things I learned through this particular part was what do I do first in order to get this boat in shape to go sailing? A friend of mine told me, and I kind of knew this, but I'll relay the information is that the first thing to do is go into your engine room and get your engine, your auxiliary, and everything down there. Spend all your time there. Don't worry about what the cosmetics of the boat look like. Get the engine. Get the electrical business taken care of. Get your chargers taken care of. Get rid of the batteries. Buy yourself a new set of batteries so you could keep track of it. Get yourself a new charger. Battery trickle charger. Spend that money, that initial amount of money, in getting your physical plant in tip-top shape. And that means for your engine maintenance, make sure you change all your zincs. Okay, People forget about zincs. And sometimes, uh, depending on the engine, there's zincs in there that you can't even see that are zincs that are zincs. Okay, They're hidden, kind of been painted over, whatever the case may be. Change your belts. Now, anytime you change stuff to put new on, you're always going to save the old just in case of emergency, but go buy a spare. 
And so when you budget this stuff, think about it this way. Go buy a spare. If you're going to buy a hose, an exhaust hose, all right, which is an expensive piece of hose, um, you know, make sure that, that you know the sizes or you can buy another one to keep it around in your boat somewhere. You know, the, the, the hoses um, on the engine, you know, make sure you have at least one of those. Make sure you have enough um, clamps and brackets and other kinds of uh, springs. Anything that moves, you have to be able to, you know, take a look at it and all of those sorts of things. And in fact, uh, later on, I had to upgrade and uh, create a bigger refrigeration system on the boat and um, uh, adding stuff and engineering it and adding stuff to the engine. I put um, bottom line, I put in a Mitsubishi uh, air conditioning compressor, okay, on the engine. So I had to build an arm on the engine, add another belt so that when I turned it on, the compressor would compress and it would freeze a freezer box for me. It's amazing. It, and that's what you're using for your car but it would freeze, you know, an enclosed space. And um, they're very efficient little things. They don't, and the, the, the compressors don't cost very much at all, an air conditioning compressor, especially aftermarket. So a lot of stuff to do. The other thing to do is, is most all of you will, will be having diesel engines, um, you know, your injectors. Make sure you have a second set of injectors because you're eventually going to need them. They're going to wear out, all right? And they will wear out at the worst possible time. I had a set of brand new injectors that I was taking on fuel in South America. And the fuel, I, I, literally, if you looked at the fuel station, the gas station that I was, I was at getting fuel, it's the cleanest looking place. It looks like it, you know, was like a real fancy shell gas station in Los Angeles. It was like brilliant, okay? And and I didn't put any of my uh, filters in before I started pumping diesel fuel into it, into my boat. I pumped diesel fuel in, and it was the dirtiest diesel fuel I had ever seen. And it just it just killed my injectors. So the first thing that you want to do, and psychologically for me, is I do everything I can possibly do on the engine, and then the batteries. The starter is always something you're going to have a problem with, especially if the boat's been sitting a long time. And as a lot of you know, um, the previous owner probably kept the boat up pretty well when he was interested in the boat, but he kind of lost interest, so... You know, he hasn't really, he turns the boat over every couple of weeks, you know, and starts and stuff. And that's, not running a boat is like, that's death. That's just death to a boat. So what I did was, I got everything on the engine tipped, you know, tip top. I found myself a starter um, uh, that could fit, and I kept it as a spare, I also had a couple of pumps, you know, water pumps that were easy to find. Um, it was a, a Ford Lehman engine, which you find six cylinder straight six. It's the simplest tractor engine in the world, and you can find parts all over the world. Um, but I didn't want to leave any of it. 
because I knew I was going to be traveling extensively and I, I just didn't want to be searching for parts. And so I had, I got all of that. And the one thing that made me feel really good after I did all of this, because I actually had to take out the air conditioning unit and I had to take out the generator, which was completely dead. Um, I took had to take all those out, so I had more room in the floor cockpit engine room area than I could imagine, and that I did imagine. And I spent the whole time working on cleaning it up, on painting it, on rewiring it, so that the wiring all made sense. Um, you know, things for my air conditioning, things, for, uh, you know, lines for the air conditioning, lines for the refrigeration, you know, everything, everything was, was examined, um, outlined, you know, I did drawings of them, and then I painted everything. And there was actually a couple of things that I found. Um, a lot of times they use just regular, you know, some wood, pine, or whatever the case may be, on the inner wall in the engine room, okay? And I, I found that some of that stuff, because of dampness and stuff, started to, to the plywood started to delaminate, and, and, and some of the, uh, the wood 2x4s started to rot. So I pulled all that stuff up, put it all back in to get, you know, um, all grounding wires, and that's a big thing for everybody to check. Spend time following all the grounds, Grounds are important. Grounds will save you. Do that. Take the time. Make sure everything is ground clean and tight. So that gets us back to the batteries. Now, there's a lot of conversation and stuff about batteries. I am enthralled and love the concept of an electric boat. I think that's the coolest thing in the world. I just love that idea. And I think... I think that's probably where all boats will eventually go, um, is to be totally electric. And um, because that's the one thing that we do in a charter, you know, uh, is manage our batteries. And we spend a lot of time uh, working, checking, and, and, and taking care of our um, auxiliary generator. And because generators are really important on a boat. And uh, because that generator will save your butt if your batteries all die or if something happens. Like I was struck by lightning and every single one of the batteries was dead. And I, I wasn't even going to be able to start the engine anyway because the starter melted into one glob of melted steel. So, you know, my generator at that point wouldn't have helped me at all to start the engine. But in any case, um, you get the point that what I'm trying to get across is just start with that, okay? Then the next big thing that you have to sort of pay attention to um, is take your survey and go over in detail what your survey is. Look at what the surveyor looked at. Every detail. Take your flashlight, take your little hammer, take a screwdriver, just go and figure it all out. It's the best way to learn your boat. Go through the whole thing. Now, one of the things that I had, and it's not a funny story, but it's just a, it's an I told you so, so kind of story. 
is that you plan ahead, you plan this, you plan that, you've got extras for everything, and you're all set, you're ready to go, and the one thing you think you've got covered, you don't have covered, because you didn't do something very simple, like actually check the belt you should put on it. I had a, a hydraulic uh, arm for the rudder, okay, and it was run by a servo mo motor, you know, left, right, left, right, you know, back and forth. And that servo motor, okay, ran onto a gear which moved the um, the piston back and forth. All right, and it was it was just a a, a belt. And um, I had gone to the store deliberately, gone to the marine store. Um, bought the specified belt. It was in a bag. I looked at it. It was the right numbers. And then I took the belt and I, I like, I like to do this. This is my own thing. But if, if, if it's a difficult place to get into, I'm going to put what it is that I'm going to re change. I'm going to put that in there. Like it used to be a real problem getting into, um, to the belt, which I never had to change, but it was a problem. So I ended up nailing it to um, one of the cross beams, the, the package, so that if there was a problem in a pinch, I wouldn't have to go looking through all the drawers in you know, the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the night, trying to find a belt. Um, the same thing goes for um, uh, this, you know, the stern tube. I, <laughs> I, I, had, uh, I had all the tools there. I had the right wrench and and I had stuffing, and I had the stuffing puller. I had them all in little hooks because I had to go into the galley, take the little hatch from the galley, which I could barely fit my body in. I had to slide down, upside down into, and l put my back literally on the hull to reach over and adjust, okay, the gland, so it, it, it would tighten up. I, I tried to, later I tried, I put um, um, the uh, dripless on there. Still had the same thing. I had to go down there and adjust it on occasion and, and do this sort of contortion. And I remember once I was at Anchor um, and I had just uh, put all new stuffing in and I got the boat nice and, it, you know, it's typical Caribbean. It's, you know, 86 degrees and, you know, I'm down there without a shirt on right because it's hot and um i'm by myself on the boat i get everything in there and now i'm going to try and i get everything repaired and fixed and now i'm going to try and get out of there well my back just stuck to the inside of the hull and here i am laying there in laughter thinking this is where i'm going to die because i can't get out of a hole in in my boat and people are going to find me with my legs sticking straight up out of the galley. Uh, it's a funny scene, and I, I laughed so hard that the laughing made it worse. And I, I, it took, I had to calm down in order to, to eventually slip myself out. But I was literally stuck for about a half an hour. True story. So anyway, the next step I always look at is I've done the auxiliary um, if you have a generator, um, do the same thing and estimate the life that you think you're going to get on your generator um, because you're going to have to replace it. Um, eventually, it's either going to be replaced or um, rebuilt, one of the two. So that's a, that's a budget thing that if you make a timeline and say, okay, you know, 
in another thousand hours or 1500 hours or whatever, I'm going to probably have to replace this generator. Then, you know, write that down so you can anticipate that cost. Okay. Same goes for the batteries. You know, just it depends on how much you use them, but let's put it this way the more you use them, the better off you are. Same also goes uh, for your alternator, right? Um, you know, they have, you know, marine alternators that are very heavy duty amperage to really refill your batteries and stuff like that. Those are great. Um, they work really, really well. Um, the problem with it is they eventually burn out um, quicker than sort of an old, uh, less experienced or less powerful uh, um, alternator. So after you've done all of this and you're satisfied with your engine, you're satisfied with your um, generator, you're satisfied with the way the wiring looks, and I mean, that's where you throw your big money, right? Right in that area, okay? So you've got the engine painted, the engine painted, the floor under the engine painted, the entire engine room already looking Bristol, shiny, ready to go. Everything's organized. You can turn the, turn the key, thing starts, boom, you can go anywhere you want. And then you look around and it becomes cosmetic time. And you're just, it starts to eat you, you know, I'll do this varnish. I don't really feel like working on mechanical stuff today. I'm going to do some varnish. And then, you know, you do a little bit of varnish and you do a little this and do a little that. And, you know, you start making compromises along the way. And all of that stuff needs to be done. But what I'm here to tell you is this, this is the time when you first buy a boat that you're going to be a little more flush with cash, right? So you've spent whatever you've spent down in the engine room and you've got that you've got that perfect you could go around the world you're good you're good for months years everything is copacetic down there the next area that you have to work on is your rigging and sails your blocks all right you've got to really look at this stuff carefully because there's nothing worse, and I've had it happen to me, and I've had it happen with old blocks and new blocks, all right? In the middle of the ocean at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, you're crashing along, lots of waves, strong wind, 25, 30 knots. You're booking, okay? And a block explodes, and it throws everything amok, right? Uh, new or old. But you got to check that stuff and work on that stuff. And then spend the time on your sales. And one of the things that you can do is, is every boat out there, any kind of production boat, the sail plan, depending on who it's, who, whether it's North Sail or Doyle or whatever, they have in their computers the sail plan and the type of sails that go on these boats. And a, not, a knowledgeable... Um, dealer of those sales um, can help you immensely um, get the right sales. Um, it's nice. I, I had, I spent a lot of money on my sales and um, I had made a mistake. I made the mainsail probably a little too heavy. Um, it had been too thin um, the weight of the sail, the cloth weight, was too was too light, 
and I don't know how it got there. And then I overestimated it and I made it too heavy. Um, so it was more like a storm sail than it was, you know, a day-to-day um, mainsail. Um, that's the main thing. And then, of course, you're going to look at spinnaker poles. So that is uh, the main thing is just to get that done. Get a rigger over. Look at everything. Um, you know, you can check uh, anything that looks dubious in terms of stainless steel. Go ahead and do it. And another trick that maybe, I don't know, some people know, some people don't know, but I, I find it really worthwhile is if you have a lot of rust here and there, um, get yourself some osfo. That's phosphoric acid. You'll find it in any um, any hardware store. Okay, it's usually they say it's you know to take rust off of cement and stuff like that. Um, I became a real believer in osfo um, because I do like a thirty percent osfo, seventy percent water in a spray bottle. Spray that on and let it sit for a few minutes and then you can you just wipe off the the rust it just disappears it's amazing and it's also ridiculous ridiculously wonderful to do um to clean teak decks it'll blonde a complete a teak deck in in nothing flat um you pour it on um usually at those things it's about 50 50 um use a brush brush it out um, let it sit for a little bit and then rinse it off. And then it, when it dries, it'll be super blonde. And, and it doesn't take the oil out of the deck. It just takes that top surface oxidized oil and, and turns it back into being what it should be, normal uh, teak oil. Um, little tip for, for people out there. And, and the Osfo is great for all the, um, is great for, all the rust spots and it's also good um to to use to see if you have any cracks in any of your eye bolts or any 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 anything you got that's stainless steel um it'll clean it up and give you a good indication what it is so here's you'll have to make a decision on whether you think your standing rigging is gonna is in good shape um should i change should I not change? Whatever the case may be, um, this is all stuff you'll have to do and and consult with some experts. Have them come by, and and take a look. But that's where the next junk chunk of money should go. The last chunk of money should go into the cosmetics of the exterior. Okay, but I've also known people who who have completely redone the interiors of their boats um, before they even touch the exterior. Um, and, and I kind of like that idea. Um, I had to change some of the bedding, um, and the mattresses to, I changed them to, um, a real hard closed cell foam, um, which was very, very good. Um, underneath a lot of the mattresses, I made sure that the boards that were under there had holes in them so that the mattress could could air and especially if you live like in uh, pacific northwest or or the northeast where it gets cold and if you stay on your boat there's uh in the winter or overnight or something like that you'll get an awful lot of moisture underneath and that moisture will turn 
um, into mold and you'll be throwing away your mattresses just because you wanted to spend a cold and chilly night on your boat at anchor. So once you've kind of got all that stuff done, then it's time to evaluate what you're going to need electronically. So once you've got your, you've now got your engine plan and it's all up in Bristol, you've got your sail plan all in line, your rigging, all of its stuff, you're all set as far as that stuff is concerned. So the next step, and the next thing you have to look at, is how I'm going to kit my boat out. Chart plotter, electronics, all the rest of that kind of stuff. However, before you do that, I would like you to consider safety equipment. And go out, get yourself the right harnesses, the safety equipment, Make sure your flares, everything is that you need to have safety equipment. If you're going to put a life raft on, life rafts are, are expensive. Um, you know, set your boat up so you have a little life raft. Um, you may never use a life raft. You may have never had to ever use a life raft. Um, but, they're, but they have to be repacked on occasion and, you know, you have to maintain them just like you maintain anything else. Another thing that I highly recommend, and I will do a separate podcast on this, um, is medical supplies. Um, buying a little, you know, medical kit, right, with Band-Aids in it and stuff like that is really not going to serve you. That may be okay for, the, for somebody who cuts their finger when they're in the galley slicing tomatoes for your salad, but it's, it's not what you need. You have to consider this. You're going to be out. Okay? You're going to be out by yourself. And if somebody gets hurt, you're going to have to help them. And you need to have the right equipment. So next week, I'm going to do an entire story on helping people um, at sea medically. And some of the experiences that I've had. That'll be next week's episode. But I want you to consider that. Next thing you want to consider besides your safety equipment and your harnesses and your life vests, etc., and all the rest of that, um, flares, um, whether it's a flare gun or it's a regular flare, um, anything of that nature. So you want to have all of that um, brand new in tip-top shape in a spot where you know you can get it. You want to have the makings of a getaway bag. You want to have that on your boat, it's tucked away under a settee so you're ready to go, you know, including like, you know, knives and and line and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And I'm going to get into that next week because I'll run on, I'm running out of time here this week. Um, so that's where we are. And now you have to figure out all the rest, the varnish, the painting, the hull, the through fittings, the prop, the rudder, all of that kind of stuff you do in the yard. But for the most part, you can do 90% of your boat, okay, by getting your auxiliary and getting your sail plan taken care of, making sure you have your safety equipment all correct, and then get into the electronics and what you need. And electronics will be, a, I'll do a separate podcast on electronics because there's a lot to talk about on how to do that. 
And anyway, so that's, that's sort of the approach that I take when I buy a boat um, and I have to fix that boat up. Um, next week, we're going to get into a couple of uh, uh, different things as far as safety, um, medical stuff, and taking your first aid uh, training uh, seriously. And um, that one should be pretty, pretty exciting. So anyway, um, I hope I've been helpful and I look forward to uh, any comments you might have. If anybody has uh, little theories or whatever the case may be. Um, the one thing I did forget to say, and now it reminds me is, is that, um, manuals, manuals for everything, like your engine, your boat manuals, everything that you could find, um, put them in one place, save them and keep a nice log. So, you know, you know how to deal with them. You know, it's nothing like having an exploded view of a, of a, a outboard motor, so that you can figure out how to, you know, if it doesn't run, what to do next and that sort of thing. Because mostly in their manuals, they give you uh, troubleshooting. And that's an extremely healthy thing to do. Anyway, um, more on that stuff a little bit later. I thank you very much for listening to me. And um, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>